Your initial round, you should probably start, I used to say like three months to four months ahead. It should probably be like seven months now because of how tough it is out there. And having conversations, you gotta have the conversations with investors and they usually just don't like write you the check right there. Welcome to the Startup CPG Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Freitag. We've heard on the show before how big of an undertaking fundraising is from both founders and investors, but we haven't had a chance to really dig into the legal side. When Paul from Ouroboros was on the show last year, he shouted out Gianuzzi Lewenden for helping their team during fundraising. Episode number 68, if you haven't checked it out yet. So we reached out to partner Ryan Lewenden to see if he'd be willing to sit down with us and talk all things fundraising, mergers and acquisitions, and legal help unique to CPG companies. Listen in today as Ryan shares about where attorneys can help in the fundraising process, tips for navigating safe notes and common pitfalls, tips for navigating price rounds, what to understand about exits before you start raising money, alternatives to exiting via sale of your company, the current fundraising and M&A mergers and acquisitions climate and tips for navigating, and more. If you're new to the fundraising topic, I recommend episode number 60, Venture Capital and Private Equity 101, and or episode number 70, Angel Investing 101, to help define key terms that will be used in this episode. And stay tuned at the end for a mini interview with Startup CPG Shelfie Award winner, Balkan Bites. I can't say enough about how much I love their incredible pastries, and you won't want to miss Ariana's founding story. Now let's hear from Ryan. Hi, Ryan. Welcome to the show today. How are you? Jesse, I'm doing great. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Yeah, it's so good to have you here. A few episodes back um, when we talked with Ourobora about fundraising, Paul uh, shouted your firm out. And so it's so fun to get to have you on the show and now get to talk about some of these you know, fundraising and M&A topics. So just really good to have you here. Awesome. Me too. And, and thanks for the shout out, Paul. Appreciate it. Awesome. Well, can you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself and about your firm? Yeah, absolutely. So um, myself, Ryan Linden, I am a longtime uh, consumer goods um, consumer and fan. When I uh, came out of law school, I ended up working at a corporate firm who had vitamin water as an early client. And um, I started working vitamin water pretty early on, um, you know, like 50 cents deal where he had his own flavor and had equity and brand was one of my first uh, deals I worked on at a law school. And then like Jennifer Aniston's deal with uh, Smart Water, which became like one of the longest running CPG partnerships. Um, and it went for over like 15 years after the sale of Coke and sort of did worked on everything with vitamin water with my, uh, with my partner, now partner Nick, um, all the way through the sale of Coke in 2007, 2008 for $4.7 billion, which, you know, at the time was absolute benchmark uh, for the sale of a CPG business, especially one that had started like six, seven years earlier and had just kind of stormed in the industry. As a result of that, people kind of started picking up the phone and, and, and calling us. And um, we got a couple more consumer products uh, clients. And um, we we decided to go to our first trade show in 2008. Uh, it was Expo East in Boston. You know, we went around with like our business cards and we were like, Hey, you know, we're lawyers. Anybody need a lawyer? And people were like, well, you know, I'm not getting sued right now. So like, I don't know. And I'd be like, no, 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 that's not what we do. We, that's not what we do. We help you like structure your company and we help you structure around a financing and we help you build your supply chain and we help make sure your voice isn't minimized in the boardroom as you like bring in additional layers and complexities of investors and people. And, you know, we eventually help you exit and people are like, oh man, yeah, I absolutely need you. Like I had like 
six employees. Now I have 68 employees. And my lawyer's like a, a trust and estates a guy that's my uncle's friend. And they don't know what a, a billback is. And they don't know what a distributor does. And I just need someone who's got a contextual basis for my industry. And so from there, we, you know, we left with like, um, like, uh, Vita Coco and like Happy Baby Organic Baby Food and Pirate's Booty and Pretzel Crisp and like Siggy's Yogurt, all those kind of new clients. And um, we also have some willing to like, you know, help those companies scale and, and sell. In the course of doing so, we left uh, the firm we were at and we started uh, this current firm and its iteration. Uh, and today, Genius E. Lewenden, uh, you know, we've got uh, about 30 lawyers. Our, our passion and quite honestly, where I get like the real sense of satisfaction and, and meaning out of my work is helping companies like, you know, when they're really early on and helping them scale and grow and eventually exit. And, you know, exit means different things, different people, but usually it means sale to another company or, or going public. Yeah, that's all super awesome. And on the fundraising side, where is an attorney helpful in navigating fundraising? Like what kind of, you know, specifically what kind of things are you helping brands navigate in the fundraising process? Yeah, it's kind of comes from a a couple different angles. Um, the first is like kind of what any lawyer can or should do, which is like, hey, what do your documents look like? And are your documents accurate? And are they correct? Right. And then, but then the other things I do are, hey, strategically, you know, are you making the right decision in the type of documents or the type of financing that you're doing right now? Right. You know, is a safe right for you versus a common route versus a convertible note versus preferred route? Um, and why, right? Why is that right for you in terms of like what you're trying to do right now, which is like the problem right in front of you, which is always, hey, how do you get money in the door? Um, but also like what's next, right? How do you set yourself up for success in the next round, the next round, the next round, right? Because getting that one round of financing done is like, you know, winning the battle, but sometimes you lose the war by winning the battle if you take the money in on terrible terms or, or you take it in without sort of thinking about what's next, right? And then it's also, I do a lot of sort of help in helping founders think through the story they're telling, you know, hey, what does this company mean to me? Where do I think it's going to go? And like, how can I put that all together in a cohesive loop where I can I can communicate to investors, this is what the company means. This is where I think it's going to go. And this is why it's a good deal for you to come in now, right? Because this is, don't wait for the next round. This is why you should come in now. Having those three things is uber important. It's so important. The first is really important. Like this is what the company means to me because you want to attract like investors, right? You want to attract investors who share your value systems and your beliefs. You might get the money in from people who are very far from that. And your life can be very, very difficult because of a clash in like value system, clash in experience, a clash in you know, just general sort of thoughts about where the company can go. If you have very, very unhappy investors, it's going to weigh you down, right? And then, yeah. th- then the narrative on where you're going to go, right? Like that's so difficult, right? If, especially when you're early on, right? When you're very mature, you kind of know like, all right, I'm 60 million, I'm going to go to 80 million or I'm going to go to 120 million or whatever. But like, I've got a real line of sight. When you're earlier on, it's much more like throwing a dart at a dartboard but it's still important to do to like set intentions and expectations for yourself and for your investors, right? Like, Hey, are you going to go out and, you know, are you going to double your sales? Hey, maybe you have no sales. Maybe you're going to get to a million in sales, maybe 2 million in sales. Setting that sort of alignment with the investors and with yourself about what you're going to do with the cash is going to set yourself up 
for that next round of finance, right? If you tell investors, hey, I'm going to take your million bucks and I'm going to get to, you know, 7 million in revenues, great. But if you get to 2 million in revenues, you're not going to have anybody else that wants to re-up in the next round, right? Like you're not going to have anybody that's got confidence. If you tell people that you're going to do 7 million in revenues and you do 10, everybody's going to love you, you know, but you probably shot a little too low when you're rallying your company, right? So it is, it is, it is setting an intention. It's setting expectations. It's aligning people. And then the third part is like, why is it a good deal for the investor? A lot of companies I speak to and I work with, you know, they want to raise money. Um, you know, a lot of them want to be told or, or expect to be told what they're worth, you know? And like when you're, again, when you're a mature company, like a big funds, you know, can come in and do a great job at like analyzing your business and comparing it to other companies and, and give a good value assessment of what you're worth, right? Um, when you're like sub 10 million revenues, a lot of people don't want to do that. A lot of the investors, especially, you know, if you're raising under 5 million bucks or something like that, right? Like the investors don't want like to do all that work, right? They want you to tell them, they want you to have an idea and a vision of what you're worth and to be able to explain to that, that to them. But then also to explain to them, well, this is why the valuation I'm giving you is a good deal, right? Like if you come in, if you come in today at ten million dollar valuation, by the time I spend the money, the company's going to be worth twenty million dollars, right? Like if you can articulate that intelligently and explain that to people, even in this market, which is one of the tightest markets that we've seen in you know decades, people are going to come in, people are going to invest because it's a good deal, it's a great deal. You know, they're they're those deals are few and far in between, right? And you mentioned the. Uh, you mentioned safes, and that's a, a really popular topic. A lot of people are looking into safes. Can you talk a little bit about some of the like, you know, risks or implications of, um, you know, what you may run into uh, using a safe and not involving an attorney, or you know, why it kind of generally, you know, often is okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I like a safe too. A safe stands for simple agreement for future equity, and it and it was kind of originated by the the Y Combinator incubator. And uh, it started in tech, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago at this point, but it kind of trickled its way into CPG. Like like five, six years ago, you didn't really see anybody using a safe. And now it's pretty commonly used. It's better than like a convertible note in that a convertible note, just there's a lot more complexities to it. There's interest rates and there's default dates and all this other type of stuff. A safe is very simple. It's very straightforward. It's got, it's not equity yet and it converts into equity, typically when you do a preferred round of financing, and it usually converts in at a discount to that round, or it converts into a valuation cap. Sometimes it just converts into a valuation cap. Sometimes it just converts into a discount, but mostly it converts into a discount or a valuation cap. So in today's market, and this is kind of the biggest like, like pitfall I see people doing, is the valuation cap is a post-money valuation cap, which means that the number you pick, well, like $5 million, right? The $5 million valuation cap is based on the company's valuation after the money comes in. The other way to do it is to do a pre-money valuation cap, which is the number represents the valuation of the company before the money comes in. Right. Investors love a post-money valuation cap because if, if, they, if you're raising a million dollars and you've got a $5 million post-money valuation cap, what it means to the investor is if I put in a million dollars, I get 20% of the company, right? No matter what. I'm going to have a million of five. So I'm going to have 20%. Um, and that gives them a lot of comfort that that'll be the percentage they get. For companies, if you're raising a million bucks and you only raise a million bucks and that's all you raise and then you do your preferred round, that's awesome because that's what you end up getting. That's what you thought you were going to get. It's totally good. Uh, the problem is 
almost nobody does that. Anybody who starts a safe round, it's always like a little easier to get a little bit more money when you need it before that converting, um, you know, preferred round and to take yourself a little farther to get your valuation up. And the problem is the net effect of a post money cap is that the more money you raise on a post money cap, the more dilution you have, like all the additional dilution comes from you. So if you raise, if you raise a million dollars on a $5 million post, it means your company's worth $4 million, right? If you raise $2 million on a $5 million post, it means your company's worth $3 million. So you raise you raised a million dollars more, but your company's worth a million dollars less. It's not really math that's like logical in a lot of ways, at least to me, but, but investors really like it because it gives them a sense of certainty. Um, when you're like, I think if the company's a little more sure and you're using this as a bridge and you kind of know when you're going to, when you're going to need the money and you know that the money's going to be there and like, you're just using it to fund this like upspurt and growth. I think it's great, but What's happening is most people are using it like f- to get out the gate. And what most, most startup consumer goods companies have no clue how much money they're going to need or where it's going to take. Um, and that uncertainty is all born by the founder if you use a post money cap. So how do you fix it? Well, look, you could push for a pre-money cap. And pre-money cap means the more money we raise in this round, the more everyone's diluted. The founder too, but like the other investors, everybody else, everybody shares in the dilution of that, but the company's better capitalized, right? So everybody's sharing in the benefit of the additional capitalization by the dilution of the safes. To me, that's like much more logical and much more fair. But again, like, so I would say, look, if you don't know how much money you're going to need, go for a pre-money cap and just investors say they don't like it, just try to convince them otherwise. Um, but if you're in a situation where you're pretty confident you're only going to need that fixed amount of money, um, you know, go for your post money cap. Yeah, that's very helpful. And can you talk a little bit about like, you know, if whether or not you've used a safe first or maybe you did friends and family or something and then you're going into your first like priced round, you know, what are some of the the things to think through or, you know, uh, common like pitfalls that you see in that first price round? Yeah, the first price round, a bunch of things to think through. <laughs> first of all, who is funding that first price round, right? Like, do you have a lead or are you kind of passing the hat, right? And in that first price round, you kind of see both, right? Later on, when the check sizes get bigger, it kind of like by the nature of the amount of money that you need gets filled out by kind of one fund leads it and maybe maybe some other people come in. But those earlier rounds could be like gobbled up by a bunch of different investors who, you know, or even if it is a lead, like, is this person or entity or whatever, is this like my long-term partner, right? And, and are they going to fund the company through the next round, the next round? And the answer is probably no. The answer is probably the person who's investing now is like, recognizes what I got and is bridging me till I get to a certain level. And then they expect another party to come in, right? On top of that. So if they're not your long-term partner, you got to think about what's going to happen as you layer partners in right? Preferred rounds come with rights for that round. They come with board seats. They come with blocking rights. Those two things you have to think, all right, well, how many board seats am I giving away to this partner? And how many am I going to have to give away in the next round, the next round? You know, for the most part, founders should be maintaining board majority, you know, consummate, at least with their ownership, right? Like at least until they're over under 50%, they should still have a majority of the board. The dynamic that sort of these minority investments is, is the founders control the board, which means they kind of make all the decisions 
And then the investors, minority investors, have these blocking rights that, that, in my opinion, should just put guardrails on the founders doing things that are inappropriate, right? Like stealing the money. What happens is a lot of these rounds sometimes get like, because people are investing earlier, maybe someone's investing in this priced round, maybe they're going a little earlier than they're comfortable with in terms of the company, they over-lawyer it. So they put every protection they possibly can on the company, right? Hey, we want an even board right off the bat. We want every approval and blocking right under the sun. You know, you can't approve your budget without. Um, the problem is they're protected legally, but the company's worse off operationally because maybe now you have someone without real sort of industry expertise that has to approve your budget and doesn't really understand what a budget for your company should look like, right? So you're putting, you're kind of skewing the power dynamic. So one thing I really help people do, in addition to sort of doing legal documents, is really keep evenness in that power dynamic, right? Hey, if you're not the long-term partner, maybe you get a board seat, but maybe you lose that board seat when you go under a certain ownership percentage. Uh, maybe we're giving you blocking rights, but you know we're giving you blocking rights on you know distributing money or giving you blocking rights on the founders doing self-dealing stuff, but we're not giving you a blocking right that prevents us from being able to sell more shares in the future or raise more money or sell the company, right? Because these are all things that that partner doesn't necessarily have expertise or insight in that they're really adding. So that's like one thing I see happen a lot. Like you kind of like have a skewed power dynamic in that priced round. Um, Another is redemption rights. Like a lot of these priced rounds will put in a redemption right because it's something like form documents say you can put in. But if you're in that first priced round, like is five years really a reasonable sort of runway for the money? Problem with having a redemption right is that the thing burns down, right? Like a lot of them, people ask for a redemption over five years, sometimes seven. Um, if you have like a reasonable amount of time to grow and mature over that period, as that thing burns down, like either that person's going to be in a position of leverage because they're going to have to waive it or other investors are going to be really reticent to come in. They're going to be like, cool, I like your company. It's great. But like in two years, um, there's someone who can like pull the, pull the ripcord and the company is likely going to have to sell because we're going to have to, we're going to have to, you know, exit this person. And I see that happen a lot. Like people put in redemption rights too early. Um, in my opinion, redemption rights should be put in like where there's, where people are coming in, there's a reasonable line of sight to an exit. And, you know, there's some question about whether the founders are ever going to want to give the company up. Like they're just real, you know, lifers. And, you know, the investors say, hey, look, that's cool. I get it. But like, you know, the company's good. It's on really good footing. There should be an opportunity for me to get out, not an opportunity for me to bankrupt the company. And, and you know, it's one of these things that I think carried over from tech, really, that in tech, like earlier on, the, the companies can get a bit more profitable. People can get out and not totally like ruin the company. In CPG, there's just, you just don't really see it happening uh, when you get these early, really early stage things in. Yeah. I mean, those are kind of the biggest pitfalls that I see in those price rounds. Yeah, that's super helpful. And th- this reminds me of how when we both when Paul was on the show and then when we had Wayne Wu from VMG on the show, the topic came up of that getting a divorce is often easier than, you know, getting a divorce, quote unquote, from uh, an investor of like, you got to be really careful who you choose your investment partners, because this is long term. And like you said, especially when there's causes like redemption rights, I'm curious from your side on since you may see some of the like litigiousness that happens or when things go wrong, like, you know, what what would you say about like being careful about choosing who goes on your cap table and, you know, any yeah, what some of the implications can be that can, you know, how can that make it complicated later if it's not the right partner? 
Sure. Well, look, if, if you get William Wu on your cap table, you're having a good day because, you know, <laughs> BMG is just best in class. And um, it's good that we've got like funds out there that are honorable and, you know, forthright like BMG and a bunch of the others out there. So there's a lot of good people to have in your cap table and, and consumer goods, which is great. The tough part about letting, letting the wrong people in, right? Um, there's a couple buckets, right? One is like people outside the industry, right? You see a lot of real estate investors come in and they they invest and they're like, hey, where's my dividend? Right? Like where's my quarterly dividend? That's what I'm I that's kind of what I experienced. Hey, why is this company not getting profitable really quickly? And there's just like a like a way they're used to investing. They don't get it. They don't see the process. They don't understand it. And there's just like a desire to get out, right? And an immediate desire to get out or desire to get a return that they weren't really expecting. And there's kind of no way to make them happy. And then look, there's, you know, there's what I would call like conflicts of personality, you know, where investors really and and the founders really just ultimately don't see eye to eye and people don't like each other. As a founder of a company, that's a tough spot to be in, right? Because Oftentimes, if you like, if you're the founder, if you're the majority owner and you have a majority of the board, um, you've got a fiduciary duty to all your shareholders and like to do what's in their best interest at all times. And, and for the most part, like that's going to mean doing your best to grow the company and hopefully make them a lot of money and make them rich. And that is what it means for the most part. But like people can argue a million different things and you're in the position of, like when you're in the position of control for the most part, which a lot of CPG founders are at the start, but you're also in a position of risk, right? Like if you have somebody that's just out to get you, out to make trouble, um, like allegations of breach of fiduciary duty, those are personal allegations like against you. Like there's a real risk there when there's just sort of bad animus amongst the shareholders. Um, and I, I'd say usually it, it becomes like a, it's sort of like a, a clash of personalities. And then there's just, the third is like a clash of sort of like goals, right? Like a, like, hey, company's going great. Um, you know, the fund is making a 6x return and the founder is living their life. And the fund is like, hey, I'd really like to monetize this. Um, and the founder really wants to keep going. And, and you see those things happen. Uh, and look, sometimes sometimes there's real sort of, there's real conflict between those when people have that. What I would say is what's, what's great about the market now is when you have a good company and that's the case, most of the buyers out there actually want the founders to stay on in some capacity. Uh, they've stopped buying companies outright because they've realized that they're like not really as good at doing what the CPG community is doing, the startup CPG community is doing as a whole. So, you know, we're seeing like the transaction be, hey, investors can leave, the founder will stay in, you know, three, four, five more years, we'll, we'll, we'll buy out if that's the case. So... I'm seeing a lot less conflict in, in the good companies, right? You know, the, the really tough ones are on the downside where like, you're not a rocket ship, you're, this is your baby and you've got a fund that is like looking to sort of like just take a, a soft landing and those things, that's like when the contract comes in, you know, like so those are the situation in ultimate success. Like the contract doesn't matter really because everybody's so pumped that they're just running towards the same thing. And like, in an abject like failure, the contract doesn't matter because there's really nothing to fight over. You know, it's that that stuff in between that the contract like really kicks in and it like really is really meaningful, like what every little word says. And that what and that's what that's what drives a relationship. That's what drives like okay, at the end of the day, am I, are we going my way or are you going your way? And what are our incentives to like come to a, come to an agreement? Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it 
it makes a lot of sense when, you know, we've had guests on the show or you have somebody like Jake Carls from Midday Squares that just kind of is always constantly out making friends, meeting investors. So rather than when you're like, oh, I need to re- I need money in a month, I should start meeting investors. But like, you know, a year, years in advance, making the relationships, meeting the people, not only so that you, um, you know, that you have those relationships uh, there and established so people are more willing to, to you know, be there, but also so you know who they are, you know, you know, maybe you have learned more about them and whether they are the right kind of people to have on your cap table, whether you're going in the same direction to have the same goals. So that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Look, I, I'd say, and, and Jake Carls, I feel is meeting everybody all the time. That guy just yeah. has un, unfathomable energy, but, um, but like, and he's doing a great job at, at everything he's doing up and down the line, I think. But but in terms of investors, Jesse, that's like such a good point because I meet a lot of people that are like, hey, Ryan, you know, I want you to be my lawyer. I got to raise money. I'm like, cool. They're like, because I'm out of money in like a week. And it's Ooh. like, wow, okay, it's going to be real rough, you know? But in the fundraising part of things, a lot of founders really hate it. A lot of founders don't like fundraising. A lot of founders, quite frankly, like one of the biggest reasons they concede on points to me is that they just want to be done, right? Because they just, what they, usually what they love is like the sales or the marketing or the manufacturing part of it. Like most founders don't love raising money. Some of them do, but most of them don't. And so like, it's something that most people leave kind of the last minute. And the fundraising process is a process of multiple rounds, but your initial round, right? You should probably start, I used to say like three months to four months ahead. It should probably be like seven months now because of how tough it is out there and having conversations. You got to have the conversations with investors and they usually just don't like write you the check right there. Then they usually think about it. Then you got to give them an update. You know, then you got to tell them who else is coming around and you got to see them again. And before you get the check, um, and that's one thing you got to, you got to start ahead and you got to have your deck and you got to have your term sheet and you got to have a, a tight presentation and be ready to do it. You got to start that way earlier than than when you need the money. But like the process of fundraising, of going out and, you know, meeting Wayne Wu and meeting, you know, um, Jared Jacobs from Cobb, right? And meeting Jared Stein from Monogram, all, you know, people who are like amazing people in the CPG industry, who've got a lot of knowledge, who've got big funds, who write big checks, who probably are too late stage for you. Um, a lot of people don't want to get in front of them because they don't think it's ready yet. But like developing that relationship with them earlier on is like, in my opinion, it's, it's what sets you up for that deal, right? Like, hey, look, I met you when I was doing 5 million in sales and I was too small. And I told you I was going to do, you know, 10 million the next year. And guess what? I did 12, right? When you come back and you show them what you did um, and they see that, they're going to start to build that trust and that confidence in you. Um, and they're going to start to see that story and see that trajectory and start looking for you in the spins data and start tracking you and also getting to know who you are as a person, right? Like right. so many of these companies, you know, your brand is one thing and your, your company, like it's all part of it, but like who you are as a founder and as a person and can, can these funds trust you with, it's not their money, it's their investor's money, right? Can they trust you with their investor's money? Um, they want to know you a bit, you know, and they, and they want to like getting to know you over time. There's only so much they can get to know you in that deal in that 60 days or that 90 days of the deal, but setting that up beforehand, you know, a lot of what's great about this community is that like so 
people are like, they're welcoming and it's not very closed off. And, you know, a lot of these people have calls with you and talk to you and, you know, a lot of them will give you advice. And even if they're too early, they'll introduce you to other types of investors. So I would say like, start that relationship early. It's never too early to get in front of these people and get in front and get on their radar. Totally. And what would you, you know, a lot of our brands are very early on, but, you know, they may be thinking about doing their first fundraising round, or maybe they've done a few rounds of fundraising. And I'm curious about, since you deal on the mergers and acquisitions side and the actual sale of a company and that being a a common way to exit and to pay your investors back, like, is there anything that you think that is helpful for kind of emerging brands to keep in mind about about the eventual sale or exit process or like how it works, like kind of anything that you're like, oh man, it, they would have been, you know, if they would have been thinking about this a couple of years ago, that would have really helped in this sale process now. Yeah. A lot of things, I guess like one, like one kind of like easy point is, you know, you should start building a data room from the get go, right? Like when you start your company, you should create a Dropbox account and you should put like all your governing docs in a folder and your insurance in a folder, your financials in a folder and your contracts in a folder. You should just build that out over time. Um, it, it like There's so many people that don't do that and they get these great companies and that when they get ready to take investment, like there's just papers everywhere and they got to like put it all together and organize it. And it, it really slows things down. So like from a, just a nuts and bolts perspective, just, it just takes a little bit of work. And like, if you do that over time, when investors are ready to come in or or quite frankly when like when you get that opportunity like somebody wants to like like give you a check that you didn't that is outsized or like they were a big deal and they're like cool give me your data room like you can flip it to them as opposed to be like oh data room okay cool I'll be back to you in like 3 weeks you know like you can just you just seem like you're on it but like from a more like a strategic standpoint like knowing who your acquirers could be right and like some of the greatest brands i've known you know have always had like a like an enemy, right? And an acquirer, right? So like like Body Armor. Body Armor's enemy was Gate, right? And Body Armor had Gatorade and they were like, that's the enemy. And the goal is we're gonna no one's disrupted this category. We're gonna take down Powerade and we're gonna take down Gatorade. And that's like that's what we're going for. But as a result of that, of having that, they kind of knew who the buyers were, right? Probably wasn't Gatorade, but you had Coke, you had KDP, maybe you had Nestle Water, one or two other people. But like you knew who the people who could want that are, right? Like, hey, we're gonna Powerade's the low cost, low price one. We're gonna be the high price one. That's our natural acquirer, and you can build towards that, right? You know, that can inform decisions, right? Like, hey, should I come out with uh, protein bars in addition to my sports drink? If I'm selling the Coke, probably not, right? Because Coke doesn't do protein bars. If you have sort of like a North Star in terms of where you want to go as a brand and as a product offering, as a platform, it's really going to inform a lot of the decisions you make along the way. And like the companies that I've seen, you know, sell for billions or get to billion dollar valuations, they've all had like a very good and robust sort of vision in terms of who they are and what they're going to be and how they're going to get there. And when you're earlier on or a couple fundraisers in, like a lot of people start companies because they like the product. And a lot of people start companies because they want to start a company because they don't want to work for people, which you know is basically why we started the firm and all that type of stuff. So, you know, nothing wrong with that. But, you know, if you're growing towards, you know, giving this brand to someone else, knowing who the perfect partner would be or partners or whatnot, and, 
you know, driving towards that is, is I think is going to be a much easier road than sort of, you know, the, the opposite, which is just kind of growing opportunistically. Yeah, no, that's, that's really helpful. I'm also curious because I think I, I see this come up of like, well, if I take on investment money, do I have to sell my company? Like, do you see other exit arrangements very often? What do those look like if you do see those? I'm kind of curious. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it happens. It, and by the way, it happens. I'd say when the economy is a little better, this was happening a lot is that companies were selling anyways, but like along the way, there's what was called like a recap or a recapitalization which would really mean like either the company would buy the investors out or you know new investors would come and buy them out it's it it certainly happens the the problem in the current industry right now is that it's probably not going to happen until you're like at like 100 million in revenues or if you're like profitable like before that you're profitable it's you know i'd say in like 2015 to 2019 there were a lot more recaps. The company, you know, the company would grow up. They're pretty sure there was an exit here, and the investors would be like, "Oh, I'd take my money off the table now if I wanted, right?" And you know, people would come around, you know, either internally or externally, and buy the shares, or or you bring in a new investor to buy people out of shares. Um, so yeah, that does happen. And you know, if you if you have a company that you're growing in a certain way, right? Like most. Most CPG companies, when you're at the earlier side, there's like no real line of sight towards like sustainable, profitable business, right? Because you're trying to get market share. Uh, I think there is more today because there's more focus on it. But if you get to a point of profitability and you get to a point of stability, like you can use profits to buy investors out and they get happy. You can use debt facilities to buy investors out. And, you know, I think kind did that in the past when they were, you know, taking people out. Like, so there are opportunities. You know, generally when you bring an investor, it is though, there is a different, there's a bit of a different ethos to it because look, you bring an investor, investor says, why am I coming in? (laughs) And you tell them why. And usually it's because you're going to hit some certain growth metrics. Um, And so there is sort of like some sort of clock. But again, it's, I think it's about aligning with the right investors, right? Are they in for 10 years, you know, and happy to support it? Were they maybe trying to turn around in three years. So it's fact, it's case by case, Jesse, but like it, it certainly is an option. Yeah, no, that's, that's, um, that's super interesting to hear some of those. And, you know, what would you say kind of is happening in, in the market right now? Like what trends are you seeing as far as sales or just fundraising activity? You've mentioned that it's getting pretty tight and just, so yeah, curious about some of your thoughts on the market right now. Look, the market, I actually, look, I think the market is, actually maybe even opening up a little bit more from where it was um, last year. But look, I think in this market, the people that have a really, really tough time are kind of like the sub 5 million in revenues without profitability, right? Like, I think this is the hardest time I've seen those companies find at getting cash in the door and finding investors just because there's less of them, right? Because generally people have less disposable income. So they're kind of looking a little bit more upstream. He's finding like where there's more disposable income, people look earlier and earlier for sort of deals. So it, it's hard to find that cash. Um, I am seeing, I have been seeing sort of like a like a, a bifurcation, like sort of a binary type situation where, you know, you're having these great exits and great sales for companies with really good fundamentals and really good growth, great investment rounds, great top line valuations, all, all amazing. 
And then you're seeing like, you know, companies that haven't gotten there, either have have gotten to a certain scale and haven't gotten profitable or or just had some like internal issues that they couldn't fix. You're seeing those companies like get sold for equity or get absorbed by, you know, something into a portfolio and you know, maybe there's some upside if the whole thing does well and whatnot. So there's activity. You're just not seeing like there's not really a, there's not a lot of middle ground, right? Like people are either finding a way to get really good, fundamentally good companies or they're not, you know? And, um, you know, like, like that's, that is a, it must be much more daunting for the entrepreneurs out there. Um, but my advice on that piece would be like, so focus on how you can get that fundamental place, like have that plan. I don't, I think in like 2015, Nobody really needed to have that plan, you know, like you kind of just were able to grow top line and like, you know, as long as you had enough doors and had enough eyeballs on you, like somebody was going to, somebody's going to buy you. Today, people really want, they want there to be fundamentals. Even if there's like something like additionally awesome about the company, they're still looking to see like, all right, but can it be made to like a profitable business? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. So at what stage in the fundraising process should brands reach out to an attorney? In terms of like generally when you should interface with a lawyer, uh, I'd say in terms of fundraising, probably pretty early on. What I will say is that like, if you're kind of raising money from friends and family, you don't really need a lawyer. Um, it's pretty good and pretty efficient. And I, and I really do like it. Like for me, my intent when working with early stage companies is not to like make whatever the bill is on on a safe round, it's really to set something, a longer term relationship up. And it's really to make sure that this particular company is set up really well for success in the next couple of rounds. Cause that's where things get for me is like a professional, really meaningful. But so it sort of depends like earlier on, if you're raising money from people you don't know as well, or if you're raising money from people, um, that have a, like a very different level of sophistication from you in terms of experience. And they're like kind of giving you advice on what you should be doing, <laughs> even though they're on the other side, getting a lawyer or someone with a lot of experience in that dynamic helps, right? Like a lot of what I'm doing, whether it's financing, whether it's help building your supply chain, you know, whether it's putting a celebrity deal together, I'm sort of evening the experience gap, right? Because, you know, most brand owners, you know, maybe, maybe they've raised money a couple of times before, maybe they've raised money zero times before, but like the people they'll be taking money from have invested in in a bunch of companies, right? Even if they're just rich individuals who have made a lot of investments, they're going to have more sophistication. If it's a fund, that fund has made thousands of investments possibly in very, very sophisticated ways and has very sophisticated ways of analyzing sort of um, the opportunities and speaking to the opportunities and explaining to you <laughs> why their point of view is the right point. And that, by the way, that in CPG that goes like throughout everything, like when you're dealing with manufacturers and you're dealing with distributors, right? Or you're dealing with, um, you know, the talent agents who work with a lot of these um, celebrities, like they've done hundreds or thousands of deals and you've done only a couple. Um, and there's a natural sort of dissonance between experience there um, that I, as for my like sort of channel expertise in CBG that me and my firm were able to sort of come and even that gap a little bit. So just in addition to like the legal part, that's what we shore up a lot of times. And when we get involved early, that's like more so than, Hey, I need somebody to paper my safe. It's usually, Hey, I'm like, I'm going to take a million bucks from this, you know, person, but like they're really experienced and they're telling me like, I should do this, that, or the other thing is that what's really right for me. Right. And I think for anybody just generally broadly, if you're in a situation 
and you feel like there is a dissonance in experience and you are on other sides of the table, it is good to get involved with a lawyer or even if not a lawyer, just someone with experience doing what you're doing, right? It could be another founder who's gotten, who's done it before, right? Who's done co-pack agreements before, right? It could be, um, you know, it could be uh, an outsourced, you know, uh, advisor firm like a like a propeller industries or something like that 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 will bring in like some f- sort of finance expertise um it is you should you should put experienced people around you for advice whenever you start to get sort of out of the depths a little bit in terms of complication and how how can people you know connect with your team if they are interested in reaching out to your team what's the what's the best way to reach out learn a little bit more you know, you've sure. mentioned that kind of people can reach out at a lot of different stages either early on. Um, so yeah, what's the best way to get in touch? Yeah. Um, so our website's got some more info. It's um, www.glaw.us. Uh, my email's ryan at glaw.us. Um, so you can reach out to any of those things. And um, yeah, look, we're, we're happy to talk to anybody. We We love the consumer goods industry. We love like this area. We love anything, you know, topical, ingestible, whether it's beauty or pet or baby food or beverage or spirits. And we're just very passionate about the area. So we'd love to hear from many of you and hear about your companies and um, happy to talk to you all about how we can help. Awesome. That's great. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing about this topic. And, you know, just it's it's it can be a lot to navigate. And so having someone like yourself with your experience to just, you know, share is super helpful. So really, really appreciate your time. Yeah, Jesse, thanks so much for having me on. I just, you know, love the Startup CPG community and um, I'm just happy to be here. So thanks. Don't go anywhere just yet. Stay tuned for the founding story of Balkan Bites that I recorded at the end of 2022 with founder Ariana. Hi, Ariana. Welcome to the show today. How are you? Hi, Jesse. I'm great. Thanks for having me. Super excited to chat. Yeah. Oh, I'm so excited to have you here. I got your package in the mail and what like immediate, like I stopped everything I was doing, preheated the oven and immediately, you know, popped, pop one of the bites in and, uh, oh my gosh, my house smelled amazing. Just the, like we're li- regular listeners will know we're normally a gluten-free house. Cause my husband has celiac and the product, this product's not, is unfortunately not gluten-free, no. but I, uh, do not, need to eat gluten-free. So I got a paper plate, made a little, you know, got some foil, used the oven safely and everything and enjoyed my very delightful treat. Oh my gosh. So I'm so excited to learn more about how you make such an incredible product and it well-deserved to win a Shelfie Award um, with Startup CPG. Um, And, you know, we've talked about it on a couple episodes of just, you know, Jenna and Patty on the team, like their feedback on the product. So yeah, it's such a delight to get to have you on the show today. Thanks so much. I'm, I'm so excited about the award. I have it right here oh, on my desk. Reminder every day to keep keep on going. So I'm I super love excited. It. That's amazing. Well, can you start off by just telling us a little bit about yourself and how Balkan Bites came to be. Sure. Yeah. So the idea for Balkan Bites started now four years ago. Um, My aunt and I, we came up with the idea really out of a way to remember my grandmother's legacy. It was not accidental, but a little bit. Um, So my grandmother passed away four years ago. And 
I really wanted to honor her and and learn a lot of the recipes that um, she used to make for me. So we're I'm half Croatian, half Albanian, and she was on my Albanian side. So from Kosovo, um, she lived in Kosovo most of her whole life. And then uh, during the war there in the late 90s, she came over and stayed with us and and lived here until um, the end of her life. So I, I was fortunate in a way that she did get to spend a lot of time here because otherwise I'd only see her once a year. So um, it was a terrible circumstance, but I was lucky to have her in my life for kind of the the second half of it and eat her delicious food. So she would make all types of traditional Albanian food that was really labor intensive, you know, spend the whole day in the kitchen. And it just brought me closer to my roots. And she would kind of teach me about my culture through the food. Um, And a lot of my family came over at that time. So I was just getting exposed to all sorts of amazing dishes um, that you really couldn't find at restaurants or um, in the supermarket for sure. So it, you know, after she passed away, I really wanted to preserve those recipes and hopefully pass them down to my family one day. So my aunt is really the gatekeeper of all of our family recipes. And then also she's a trained pastry chef. So she was a good person to teach me. Um, so we we started off really making burek and it's a, a savory phyllo dough pie. So the dough is stretched super thin. You know, you, typically you stretch it by hand. It's see-through. Um, and then it's filled with different savory fillings like spinach and cheese, beef and onion. Um, you could do potatoes and onion. You could really put anything in there. You can also make them sweet, but the tradition is to eat it uh, savor- as a savory meal. So consumed at every holiday. It's found at every bakery in the Balkans. Um, it's just a really delicious, ubiquitous food. And after we made it a few times, we realized there's really nothing like it in the market. And uh, we think, you know, we had a hunch that people outside of the Balkan community would really enjoy this dish. It's, you know, similar in a way to an empanada or any kind of dough stuffed with different savory fillings that's super flaky and and delicious. So we tested our theory. We did a bunch of outdoor markets and pop-ups here in New York in 2019 Um, So that's really when we launched and it went really well. People from around the world got to try the product. We would make our baked burek at the time. We would make it, freeze it, and then bake it at the events. Um, And it was really encouraging. So our plan for 2020 was really to keep testing the market, keep doing what we were doing. And we were kind of starting small, but then the pandemic happened. So we really needed to figure out how to keep going. So we realized we were making these frozen anyway. So maybe try to sell them frozen and get people to buy them and make them at home. So that's what we did. We posted on Instagram. I offered to deliver myself to whoever was in the tri-state area. We had a good customer base from all these markets. So they were the first to kind of raise their hand and say, Hey, we're tired of cooking. Please deliver these to my house. I'm, you know, going crazy. So that that really kept us in business. And then, you know, we figured out how to ship nationwide and we got some real professional packaging made. But up until the end of last year, we were still making everything ourselves, you know, and that our capacity was super limited. But luckily we we got a co-packer towards the end of last year and it's 
been such a game changer because we can now sell to grocery stores and just not really worry about providing enough for people and selling out. So now our capacity is almost unlimited. And we're, we're super excited to just be more accessible to people because that's really our goal to make our Balkan culture and cuisine more accessible. So we're just super excited for kind of this next chapter. That's amazing. And I didn't realize that you had been able to find a co-packer by now. And like, that's so cool to commercialize a product that like, it feels so home. Like when I got it, I was like, I feel like someone like spent, you know, five hours making this for me. Like that's the feeling like you get when you like pull it out of the oven. It was like, how is it that I just heated this up out of the freezer? Like, it feels like I've unlocked some sort of illegal cheat code for baking. (laughs) Um, so that's, a, that's so cool that you figured out how to like scale something that has such a like homemade, authentic, incredible feeling to it. Thank you. It was really tough. Um, they, there's a specific machine that our co-packer needed to have. And there were only like maybe 10 facilities around the world that have this machine. And it was a big investment for us to buy ourselves. So we got really lucky to find someone who w- was willing to, you know, keep keep our recipe as close to it we had it when we were making it by hand, you know, make sure all of our ingredients stayed the same and, and just be able to make a lot more than we could before. So um, we're, we're feeling very lucky for that. And it's helped us grow this year. That's amazing. And I also noticed that you have had some amazing press like Bon Appetit, Forbes, New York Times, like did those like did, did people just like hear your story and like take on to it? Or did you like, you know, did you, did you share the story with any of I'm just curious how like such incredible press coverage happened and what like well-deserved, of course, I loved reading Thank the you. articles and I'll link them in the show notes. Cause I think everyone should check them out, but I'm like, that's so cool to get features like that. Thank you. Well, when we started selling online, you know, I, I was like, how am I going to get people to learn about this product and find us? We're not doing markets. We're not at stores where they might just, you know, stumble upon us. So I reached out, I had a friend that worked in PR and she very kindly sent me her contact list. And I spent a whole weekend reaching out to everyone on that list, sharing our story, offering to send samples. Many didn't respond, but some did. And it was, you know, a whole, kind of over a year following up sending more samples. And we were really lucky and, and got some great press. And that enabled us to now have customers in 49 out of 50 states. So most people, we have a, a survey at the end of our, our checkout flow. And it's like, how did you hear about us? Most of the time, it's it's from an article. Wow, that's so cool. And then at what point did you find Startup CPG? I think it was maybe late 2020. Um, but then The first half of 2021, I actually spent in Miami. So I met Daniel and I went to a few of the first events down there when everything opened back up. Um, And it was so great to just meet the community. And and since I'm back in the New York area and I've gone to some events here too. So it's just been such an awesome community that's taught me so much throughout this journey. That's amazing. That's so cool. I'm so glad that you're you're in the group and that you've been able to go to like in-person events. Like that's so cool. I don't 
I don't live near a major hub. Um, so other than like expo events, you know, that's my chance to see people in person. So I love that you've been able to go to some of the in-person major city hubs. That's so cool. Yeah, it's been so great. So if people want to want to find you, like what's the the best way? And, you know, you can tell us maybe how it differs for different parts of the country too, but would love to hear how people can, you know, get some Balkan bites in their life. Yeah. So we would love to increase the velocities at all the stores we're at. So that's kind of our primary purpose. Also frozen shipping is just, you know, it's tough these days, but, um, we are available in stores in the Northeast, um, some of the mid Atlantic DC area, um, Chicago, Wisconsin, and Texas. So we're hoping to expand to more regions next year, but everyone else can order us online. Great. That's awesome. And then what, like what's coming up next for the next, the rest of, you know, the rest of the year, 2023, like what should we keep an eye out for? What are you excited about? Like, what are you thinking about? Yeah. Well, we're, we're really just trying to be more accessible and grow into more regions. So a lot of hopefully um, some bigger, some bigger chains for next year. This year, we're in mostly independence, but um, have had a lot of positive conversations and feedback from some bigger, some bigger accounts. So we're really hoping to be, you know, almost nationwide by the end of next year. Amazing. Oh, that's so exciting. I cannot wait to keep following along. I also, one, one kind of, uh, final question would just be, are there any like stories that stand out to you in the journey so far of like, you know, big moments or where like it felt really real or really exciting? Like would love to hear any sort of little like story snapshot window into, into building the business so far, if you can think of one. Uh, Well, I would say, so we're, we're bootstrapped completely and it's, you know, it's always a journey, especially now that we're we're selling to stores and and just you know trying to get that working capital for the inventory. Um, but it it seems like you know every time we're we're in a pinch, we've been really lucky and gotten a grant or a loan has come through. So yesterday, actually, I got an email that we got a grant from the New York State for a good amount. And I did not expect it to come through. And it it was just like so needed and so exciting. And kind of that reassurance, like everything's gonna, everything's gonna be okay. You got this because when you're expanding to new regions, new distributors, opening new DCs, it's very expensive. So, um, you know, we're, we're just trying to get by on, on what we can and, and stay bootstrapped for a little bit. So every little bit helps. And, um, really pursues us to keep going. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's incredible. Well, this has been so delightful to just like get a little snippet window into Balkan Bites and get to meet you and introduce you to our podcast audience. And so I definitely encourage everyone to, you know, go check out your website that you can go to Balkan Bites. That's B-A-L-K-A-N bites.co. And yep. then you can also follow Balkan Bites NYC on Instagram. So like make sure to give Ariana a follow um, and, you know, and see what's next. And I know that I'm going to be following along and probably after recording this, I'm going to go turn on the oven and, and heat one up because that sounds uh, delicious. And it, it really, I've just never, I don't know that I've really had a product that just I could heat up like that. And it feels like someone made it for you. And like, I think Jenna on the startup CBG team said, like, 
you know, this is one of those products that you're like, I would order this in a restaurant and, you know, I would pay for this for like an entree or something. And yet I'm able to heat it up at home. Like how incredible to bring that full experience home. So yeah, can't say enough good things about your product and just so excited to keep following you. So thanks so much for joining uh, me today and spending a little time with me. Thanks, Jesse. It's been great chatting. Thank you for listening in today. I'm so honored you joined me for this conversation and I love hearing from you all with feedback, suggestions, or if you just want to say hi at podcast at startupcpg.com or you can find me on LinkedIn. If you liked this episode, we'd love for you to share it with a friend or colleague, subscribe so you don't miss future episodes, and maybe even leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you aren't yet in our Slack community of founders and experts, we'd love to see you there. You can get the free invite at startupcpg.com and find all our other awesome resources there like webinars, databases, the blog, the magazine, and virtual and in-person events. And if you found yourself rocking out to our intro and outro music, which I do every single time, make sure to check out the Super Fantastics on Spotify. It's the band of our startup CPG founder, Daniel Scharf. I'm Jesse Freitag, your host and producer. And on behalf of the whole team at Startup CPG, thank you for being here and see you next week.